So I want to first ask about this ruling Social Democratic Party. They seem to be ever-present in the political history of Romania since uh, the communist period. A lot of people accuse the Social Democrats of harboring ex-communists at the former Communist Party, but they were in a coalition with a right-wing party in the 1990s. So what can you tell me about this group that is now trying to make it harder to prosecute corruption in Romania? The Social Democrats are, in fact, the result of the evolution of of, uh, the Communist Party. Since the 90s, uh, the the Communist Party reshaped itself and then... uh, uh, gave birth to a major party uh, that during the years uh, changed the name and got to this PSD, uh, the Social Democrats of today. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's not ideology who was propagated, but the uh, selfish interests of the, the guys in the clique, in the uh, the caste that rules Romania. Uh, they've been in power most of the period since 1990 until now. Uh, they've been in power in combination with other parties uh, that are labeled liberal or whatever. But at the end of the day, we talk about the same type of, uh, of individuals that got together to uh, get economic advantage from the Romanian state uh, in not-so-legal ways. Because, of course, after uh, the fall of communism, there was mass privatization, which allowed... Um, mass privatization, which was done according to rules uh, those guys uh, put in place, which allowed them to get most of the money for themselves. Uh, it's like you know a typical uh, post-war story of a, of a, a poor country which gets torn apart, well, sold by the pound, uh, by the people who uh, managed to get uh, in power. So the leader of this party, Liviu Dragnea, he's uh, been part of the party, been in a leadership position on and off since 2000. But even though he kind of has this economic message that uh, appears left-wing, you say ideology is almost beside the point with this party, and he hearkens to places like uh, Hungary that are anti-EU, which is odd because Romania is one of the newest countries in the EU. It joined the EU in 2007. 57% of Romanians believe and have confidence in the European Union, but that's been the opposite of what's been happening in Western Europe. So what is the relationship between uh, Romanians, their majority government, and the European Union in recent years? Um, Romania has always been uh, one of the most uh, pro-European countries, uh, I think the most pro-European country in uh, in Eastern Europe, for sure. Why is that? Why? Well, you know, we were waiting for the, uh, the Americans a long time after 1944, um, and we were always attached to the uh, Western uh, values historically, uh, and we always strived to get closer to the West. So it was natural. It was natural also given the fact that, uh, you know, we saw the standard of living of the West and we aspired to get there. And, uh, you know, these combined democratic values combined with prosperity that we wanted to have at the same level brought us the result that we are really pro-European. Okay. What happens today is that uh, the current leaders, uh, you mentioned Liviu Dragnea, uh, but also uh, his uh, ally, uh, Kalim popescu Tericianu from uh, a pseudo-liberal party, uh, they have a double discourse, a double uh, talk. They talk about uh, when they're in Brussels, they are now very seldom in Brussels because they're not welcome there, but when they're outside Romania, they talk about integration, Romania being uh, an important part of the European Union and uh, how we appreciate being there. But when they are at home, they have the same type of nationalistic, anti-European, anti-Western rap that uh, we hear from uh, Orban in uh, Hungary or, or from the Polish or uh, 
from all those reconfigured Eastern Europeans that we see these days. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned waiting for American liberation during World War II. I noticed that the the spokesperson for the Social Democratic Party, you know, six or seven years ago, got into some trouble for some kind of revisionist history there. Uh, Don Sova, the time a party spokesman, uh, said that no Jew suffered on Romanian territory thanks to Marshal Antonescu, which is obviously a, a painful history for Romania, and we see it kind of coming up in the politics of Poland, another European EU country. So that kind of populist message, though, is it seems to be appealing in a place like Poland or Hungary that looks to the past and tries to demonize the West. They are applying the same recipe as there. So Livy Dragna does things uh, by the book. Uh, they pay uh, external consultants, uh, if I know uh, correctly, from, from Israel, uh, guys who work with other populist regimes, and, and they come back with the same recipe, which you know, unfortunately, uh, gains ground. Uh, so, you know, whether it's about Jews, whether it's about uh, uh, immigrants, uh, and by the way, Romania doesn't have too many, <laughs> but still they're presented like a huge threat. Uh, whether it's, uh, for example, my party is being demonized as being a party financed by George Soros and uh, that we are sold to the West and that we want to dismantle the uh, nation of Romania and so on. So all these theories that they launch are supported by a huge um, media campaign. They control some of the media uh, trusts, uh, the, the most important uh, news uh, channels and so on, with only one objective, to stay in power. Uh, they they want to stay in power, they want to keep stealing, they want to preserve their way of life. Uh, and for that, they do anything. And they found uh, they found a recipe and they apply it. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Julian Haida, and we're talking with Senator Radu Mikhail. He represents the Romanian diaspora in the Senate in Romania. I wanted to ask a little bit about your party and your party's work. Your party was created uh, for the last election in 2016. That's when you were elected to the Senate. And it seems like your entire party's platform is anti-corruption. I, I wouldn't say that. I, I would say that the origins uh, came from uh, the frustration of being uh, in, in an environment where corruption uh, was, was ruling, let's say. But we, we can see the effects of corruption in every domain of society. And corruption can mean a lack of competency. Because if you have nepotism, you will lose competency in uh, administration Hence, you will lose the right development of the infrastructure and so on. So we're not only about anti-corruption. Yes, it's a huge sentiment and it's driving us. But we want to transform Romania. We want to transform Romania in terms of political uh, structures, in terms of political life, political behavior, uh, the political class itself. And we want to transform Romania from a development point of view economically. Uh, we want to make sure that there's the right infrastructure in place. Uh, we want to make sure that uh, there is industrialization, that we do have a word uh, in what happens at European level as a fully-fledged, powerful economic partner. Uh, and we want a society where you know you have fairness and uh, people can live normal, joyful lives. So we're not only about corruption, uh, but right now our priority is corruption since... Because of corruption, there's a process of dismantling the rule of law in, in the country. And we have to tackle this first. And uh, that's the first priority, yeah. I can understand the, the position of being critical of development because, of course, I imagine in Romania you want more investment as opposed to, uh, I think I think what a lot of 
populist leaders, including those at the forefront of the Social Democratic Party, the PSD, criticized development as, as a handout. But what in particular are you looking toward from the European Union to help raise up Romania? It's at the moment the second poorest country per GDP per capita in the European Union. But of course, it has the structural advantage of being within the European Union and access to some of the ability to kind of cross borders. So what does that pose to you as apparently kind of a a Euro optimist party um, and, and yourself? Um, having lived outside of Romania and representing the diaspora, the relationship between Romania and the European Union? Well, our party, USR, is the most pro-European party in uh, in Romania, for sure. So we are clearly uh, attached to the European values, and we believe that Romania's place is within the, a strong European Union. And we appreciate the role that the European Union, as, uh, of course, the United States had in making sure in the last three decades that Romania goes on a path of uh, development of democracy, uh, that we get to be a member of NATO, a member of the European Union. And uh, we are very glad that we have the potential to take advantage of all the benefits of being uh, part of these structures. Uh, There are billions and billions that are being allocated by the European Union to support Romania and its development. What happens is that we are not able ourselves to use all this support. Hence the fight against corruption. Absolutely. We're not able to absorb the amount of funding that is at our disposal. We're not able to have uh, important infrastructure projects that go to fruition. For example, uh, we have like several hundred kilometers of uh, highway in the country only because uh, the successive governments were not able or not willing to um, do contracts as recommended by the European Union. Why? Because if we do it like that, we use European funds and we need to respect European rules, and that prevents money being uh, taken out for corruption purposes. If we use money from our own budget, then you can do all sorts of stuff if if you're Mm -hmm. in power to get the money out uh, from there. Hence the fight we see today with the European Union to try to say, no, no, European Union tries to impose its rules. They want to be bossy with us. uh, So we have to be on our own feet and uh, demonstrate that we're very strong and so forth. In reality, behind that is just the need to be separated so they can steal uh, with impunity. And infrastructure is the best example. For example, we refuse to, the government refuses to build highway on the trajectory defined together with the European Union. You mean the inter-European highway system? Sort yeah, of like the yeah. So, so there's a plan agreed upon that has one of the highways from west to east passing on a certain route. They don't want to do that because it's paid by the European Union. They have another route where they want to do it by themselves just to be able to use the money differently. Uh, So these sort of stupid things allowed Romania to have the poorest infrastructure in the region. Uh, We have uh, auto manufacturers like Ford, like Renault, who are, uh, you know, desperate to have highways to get out the cars they are producing in big numbers in Romania. And we're not able to do that because of, uh, of corruption. When Romania joined the European Union, there was a negotiation process that imposed strict uh, rules on what we should do to go to the standard that is required to be a member of the union. And, uh, you know, we negotiated on, on many domains, one of them being uh, justice. And in this particular domain, corruption was uh, the main point. So one of the institutions that was created to uh, allow us to get to the level of uh, cleanness, if you want, in the domain 
was this anti-corruption uh, department uh, in the attorney's, uh, in general attorney's office, which has been led by Laura Kodruca-Koveshi. And this agency was able actually to put behind bars lots and lots of officials who uh, treated the public budget as their own uh, pocket. I know, for example, Ukraine has tried to implement the same kind of thing in a a march toward the European Union. It hasn't been so effective. Well, I think the difference between us and Ukraine, there are two differences. One, Ukraine is much bigger and the interests of the oligarch are much stronger. And Russia has its antennas there, uh, more than in Romania, of course. And the second difference is that we fought to be members of the European Union. Even the guys in power at that time, they said, well, it's more important to be members because we'll have more money to steal from. So they uh, allowed this uh, anti-corruption agency to exist. Uh, But then this got out of hand for themselves because those guys, the attorneys there, really did their job well and got real cases and started putting people in jail. So we have prime ministers who've been there or are there and... um, uh, we have lots of ministers and uh, you know all sorts of parliamentary uh, presence in the jails of Romania. Um, and there has been a continuous fight between the political class, the classical political class, and this agency because you know it's hard to accept after 10, 15 years of impunity that you are a normal person who can be prosecuted for your deeds if you've done something against the law. And when the Social Democrats came to power after the 2016 elections, they came to power based on a platform, a Social Democrat platform, a program that was promising prosperity, promising higher pensions, higher salaries, and so on. In reality, what they did was 90% of what they were doing on only one thing to dismantle the judicial system. And it was not only one thing, it was a multiple, a series of of initiatives, legislative initiatives to uh, limit the uh, independence of judges and of attorneys, to uh, remove some of the penalties, to remove some of the actual, actual uh, crimes that were in the penal code. All those things were done in a a very swift, uh, organized uh, manner. And one of the targets was, of course, this agency, anti-corruption agency. We, as the opposition, we did everything we could to stop this. What we managed to do was to delay this. So uh, last year, there were huge demonstrations in uh, in the winter of 2017, beginning of 2017, because they tried at night to issue a uh, government ordinance uh, that was actually putting out of cause uh, Liviu Dragnea uh, and and some of the other guys for one of the crimes they uh, supposedly uh, committed and for which they were being judged. What are some of the crimes that Dragnea, the head of well, the, Dragnea, the Social Democratic he, Party, is being accused uh, Livy of? Dragnea, who, who is the president of the ruling party, the Social Democrats, he has already been convicted for fraud in elections. He has a sentence of, I think, two or three years in jail, a uh, suspended sentence, but it's a sentence. So he's a convicted guy for uh, electoral fraud. Okay. Apart from that, uh, he was convicted, uh, I think, three weeks ago or something like that, by the first judge. He was convicted for basically stealing money from the agency that was supposed to help children in need in his county uh, and took that money and gave it to the party, to his party. Uh, So he has been convicted, jail sentence, harsh jail sentence. And what happened was that now there is a law change. So the penal code has been changed. So that particular uh, felony disappears. 
So he's basically, he has been washed out because right now, if you go to the Supreme Court, to the Superior Court, uh, they won't be able to uh, convict him anymore because the law doesn't exist anymore. And that's the gist of the law that passed on July 5th, correct? Yes. And uh, uh, I, I, sorry, I forgot one thing because what happened was that inside the Constitutional Court, who is, I think, more or less the equivalent of the Supreme Court here, in Romania, unfortunately, that court is not made out of independent persons. Some of them are uh, former politicians. Uh, the head of the court is a former politician from the ruling party now, from the Social Democrats. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Julian Haida. We're joined by Senator Radu Mikhail, who represents the Romanian diaspora in Bucharest and generally inspired by your party. There have been thousands of people who've taken to the streets in Romania in recent weeks who are demanding, I believe it's a change to the constitution. Correct? Absolutely. There's a, um, an initiative, a civic initiative launched by several organizations and, and my party, USR, uh, Union Save Romania, is one of the participants. And we're big supporters of this initiative who says that we should change the constitution and write it black on white that if you have been convicted for a, a deed and for which you got a sentence in prison, you shouldn't be allowed to run for office in any type of role, whether it's a municipal uh, council member or a member of parliament or uh, the president or, and so on. So for this, we need 500,000 signatures. And we are on track. We're like uh, almost 300,000 that we, uh, we managed to gather. We still have until uh, end of August to do that. It's a big, big, big effort, and uh, we're doing this everywhere, and we're doing this uh, even here in Chicago, but we do it all over the world where Romanians Romanian live. Romanian citizens. You need to be a Romanian citizen to be able to sign that. Uh, unfortunately, you need to sign it on paper, so it's a very complicated bureaucratic <laughs> process. I'll have some uh, paper with me when I'll meet some of the young professionals, in uh, Romanian young professionals in, in Chicago, and hopefully some of them would want to sign that. So this initiative explains exactly what happens in Romania. Romania is in the process of... Um, going down as a democracy and becoming a country ruled by thugs. And if we want to prevent that, we need to do strong things and we need to give a strong message that Romania is not a country of thieves, that the Romanian people wants a clean political class and clean administration. And for that, being able to gather half a million signatures would be a, an excellent signal that we Romanians cherish democracy, cherish the rule of law, and we will not allow uh, such things to happen. I'm looking at some of these numbers, and, and like I said earlier, 57% of Romanians support the European Union, and 64% and of Romanians would like to adopt the euro as the national currency in Romania. It's not, at the moment, become part of the eurozone. But we look at countries like Greece, which joined the eurozone, and that resulted in excessive borrowing, which uh, resulted in a default, and now they're regretting that decision. And, and you look at places like France or the UK that are leaving the European Union saying that it aids and abets corruption. Back to kind of the relationship between Romania and the EU, what does the fight against corruption and popular support for the European Union and a European currency promise to the people of Romania, despite the fact that the majority party is one that can be described as populist and nationalist and xenophobic, but a majority of Romanians support these European ideas that seem to be the opposite? Um, Europe means stability, means credibility, uh, means uh, a place where you can live, work, uh, do business in a normal, simple, clear 
uh, ordinary fashion. So why would the Brits want to leave? Um, well, we can discuss about Brexit. My take on it is that there's this populist agenda throughout Europe, throughout the world that affects people's intentions. I mean, if you do a poll today in Britain, I don't know how much uh, they, they still want to get out of the, the Union. Um, but I, I would go back to the Greek example. The Greeks did not have a problem because of joining the euro. They had a problem of corruption because they used improperly or the, the financing that they received from the European Union. The money was spent in a, in a manner that did not allow the development that should have supported uh, being a part of the Eurogroup. Okay? So this is what we want to avoid in Romania. You know, we cannot join the Eurozone now because we're not proper enough at the government level, we're not clean enough for the government level to be sure that we will be able to manage our finances properly. Uh, to give you an example, we have inflation that raised this year to 5-point-something percent in a period where the economy is doing very well. Well, it's based on consumption, but it's still doing well. And inflation is just there because the populists in power, the Social Democrats and their allies, uh, Liviu Dragnea and, and, and his fellow Tericiano, these guys... Uh, just pump money to pensioners, pump money to state employees just to have their votes, just to have their loyalty. So the Romanian state is under siege. There is this process that we've seen in Hungary, we were seeing in Poland. It's the same recipe. Um, first, you control some of the more important media um, trusts. Then you make sure that you know the judicial system goes, goes down so you're not uh, being punished anymore. Uh, you cannot be punished anymore. And, and then you have laws. We have one uh, this month that basically politicizes all the administration, local administration. And then you change the electoral law so you cannot be um, chased from power anymore. And this is what happens now. We have a proposal in parliament of changing the, le the electoral law. And this trajectory needs to be stopped somehow. We are fighting to do that. The European Union is helping on that. And I think the majority of people also look for this balance. There's someone out there who cares about you, whether it's the European Union or the United States, strategic partners, allies that care that they want to have a strong partner, a strong pillar of, of defense and an economic pole uh, in Eastern Europe that it's reliable uh, and that has a clear democratic path that's sustainable. That's what the majority of the population uh, believes. And I, I think that's our uh, hope for the future. Senator Radu Mikhail represents the Romanian diaspora in the Senate of Romania. He's done so since 2016. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks a lot for having me. At the start of the 2018 travel season, this episode of Dollar Vote explores Airbnb's unconventional response to the Trump administration's immigration laws and how the private sector partners with nonprofits and citizens to maintain what it sees as America's moral obligation to preserve the country's reputation as a welcoming place, even as the president, whose tenure is marked by walls and hostility to outsiders, puts out rhetoric and policies that suggest otherwise. And we'll dive into how this has sparked what looks like an enduring inclination toward a more intentional consumerism, where buyers consider the ethical and political positions of corporations before they hand over their money. Barely a week after taking office, President Trump issued his first travel ban in January 2017. The executive order suspended refugee resettlement and stopped citizens of seven Muslim-majority countries from entering the U.S. Many legal critics, like Garrett Epps from the University of Baltimore, 
called the document sloppy, rushed, and signed on a Friday afternoon, effective immediately. By Friday evening, people were dragged out of boarding lines in European airports. Even in mid-flight, when the ban dropped, people touched down to a rude welcome in the U.S. when Customs and Border Protection agents detained and deported the newly arrived. Massive protests erupted at airports, like Chicago's O'Hare, where members of Congress showed up at terminals demanding information on the detained. Some agents themselves, reports later showed, pushed back, outwardly disobeying federal court orders. Pro bono law clinics sprang up in airport terminals. World and religious leaders expressed outrage as volunteer lawyers descended on courts for emergency hearings. And all the resistance worked. That first travel ban was thwarted by lower courts. But as dissent faded, a second iteration of the ban was voted into partial operation by the Supreme Court last year and expired in September. The third and current version, however, has been in effect since last December, having quietly slipped by a country distracted by Russian mobsters, porn stars, Hollywood perp walks, and a volley of canceled and rescheduled summits and rescinded climate and nuclear agreements. Despite rulings from lower courts, last month, the third travel ban was upheld by the Supreme Court in a 5-4 ruling along ideological lines, making this iteration of Trump's executive order permanent law. Meanwhile, a new immigration policy brought more public outrage, even prompting condemnation from some of the president's most reliable supporters. All of us who are seeing these images of children being pulled away from from moms and dads in tears, we're, we're horrified. This has to stop. Kids must stay with their parents. Recently, Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced that the Justice Department would prosecute everyone who crossed the southwest border illegally at 100 percent. The consequence of this zero-tolerance policy was that children were taken from their parents at the border, as the adults were charged as criminals, even those legally seeking asylum at official ports of entry. Heartbreaking recordings provided by ProPublica, audio of tiny voices crying out for their parents, made their way around the internet along with images of children being held in cages, pictures that bear troubling resemblance to those of internment camps during World War II. Though difficult to keep the attention of a population suffering news cycle fatigue, corporations, heavily dependent on immigrant skill and labor, are uniquely incentivized to sustain dissent, particularly technology companies, many of which themselves were founded and co-founded by immigrants. Though the business community's opposition to the travel ban extends far beyond technology companies, the fiercest criticism comes from the tech world. Most of the American giants in the space, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google, Microsoft, Facebook, Uber, Intel, Airbnb, and others, released statements against Trump administration immigration policies. Of these, Airbnb stands out. Why? In addition to joining the chorus of condemnation from multi-billion dollar companies, the hotel disruptor dedicated a piece of its business to refugee resettlement. Fitting to its purpose, Airbnb's Open Homes program was born in the eye of Superstorm Sandy in 2012, when one of its Brooklyn users emailed headquarters asking if she could use their website to offer her home to those rendered in limbo by the storm for free. Airbnb engineers got busy, pulling an all-nighter programming marathon. 24 hours later, Open Homes was born. 
an online matchmaking platform that connects displaced people from around the world, mostly refugees fleeing war or evacuees fleeing natural disasters, with volunteer hosts, mainly in Europe and the U.S., who with the tap of a smartphone can sign up their homes from London to Chicago to receive these guests in need. When I spoke with Open Homes executive Kim Ruby from Airbnb San Francisco headquarters, she explained that civilian hosts don't just open their homes to the newly arrived, they open their lives. For example, we had a host in Dallas welcome an Iraqi family last January in the wake of the travel ban. And she got her community so involved in helping the family that her temple raised $20,000 to help the Iraqi family buy a car. That all sounds nice, but at the end of the day, I wondered how a multi-billion dollar, highly competitive, for-profit company frames a project that ties up its engineers without bringing in revenue. As it turns out, Open Homes has been good for Airbnb's bottom line in that it naturally accomplishes what marketing agencies promise to deliver with expensive ad campaigns. That is, it grows consumer trust and loyalty and gets its users spreading the word themselves. There's no question that the Open Homes platform has made our passionate community even more engaged than they were to start. They're more trusting of our mission and they're engaging their own networks of their friends and their families to also get involved. The website lets anyone sign up for open homes and set custom filters like home availability, number of guests, etc., hosts are then matched with trusted organizations such as International Rescue Committee or Chicago-based Heartland Alliance, groups which specialize in refugee resettlement. I asked Leah Tenu, Heartland Alliance's Director of Refugee Resettlement, what she thought of the collaboration. The initial contact that our our staff had with the hosts was just amazing. They were so excited to um, be able to open their home to this, this refugee family. I think we emailed them um, and within 30 minutes, they responded. So it was like we were, they were just very eager to to open their home. Um, and then the family arrived, and I think it was really a wonderful experience for them to be picked up from the airport and immediately transported to someone's home. They were able to stay in a place with a separate kitchen and a flat-screen TV, and they got to partake of American TV on their first night in the, <laughs> uh, Chicago. So I think it was really great. If you've ever traveled abroad, it's a wonderful experience, but often it's also um, sort of alienating. And if you can imagine doing that under the circumstances of also fleeing war and not knowing the language, um, how, how, how beneficial an individual's uh, opening their home to you would be. I asked Leah Tenu what sort of time and energy commitment is required. Would a host need to take off work? When refugees are newly arrived in the country, they are doing a lot. Um, they, Within their first few days, they're um, applying for a Social Security card and they're getting connected with English classes. So they probably won't be at the home very much during the day because they're very busy. And so, you know, I think the commitment is mostly in the evenings once the family gets home. But it doesn't require someone to take off work. I think you really can open your home just for a few days or up to a month, but it's not designed to sort of take away from your actual life, you know? Um, It's designed to sort of enhance it, I think. 
The world is in the grips of the worst refugee crisis since World War II, with over 22 million people displaced globally. But last fall, the Trump administration slashed the refugee cap to its lowest level in decades, 45,000. According to UNHCR, at the current pace, the government will resettle a fraction of that number, fewer than half. Almost a quarter of world refugees are Syrians, mostly women and children who narrowly escaped the hell of that war. They now live in barely inhabitable camps throughout Europe and the Middle East. Despite President Trump's promise to protect this population, as of May, the United States has accepted 11, not 1,100 or 11,000, but 11 Syrian refugees out of the millions displaced. In fall 2017, according to Pew Research Center, the U.S. received over 80,000 refugees. Sister Beth is a social worker at Vive Safe House, a refuge for asylum seekers in upstate New York. She's seen with her own eyes the dramatic drop since last year. We really did have an overflow. This place holds about 120 beds for men, women, and children. It's an old school, so they're dorm-like settings, bunk beds, kind of like a barrack. And we had to put them any place we could, and we opened two churches and took them because we had about 320 at peak. However, right now we're at 64. So you can see the drop within more than a year. Now, you would think fewer refugees admitted into the country would mean less need for volunteer hosts, such as those signed up through Airbnb's program. But that's not the case. Thing is, the U.S. State Department funds resettlement organizations, such as Heartland Alliance, on a per capita basis. So if those groups don't receive enough refugees, they don't receive enough funding to keep the lights on, which is why many of them have had to shut their doors. And this leads back to the need for more citizen hosts. But a lot of people are scared to open up their homes to people from strange lands. Even the most vulnerable among us, families escaping war, famine, earthquakes, and terror. It's no wonder, with this kind of rhetoric. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. Beyond just words, the animus that frames non-European foreigners as threats has invoked national security as a rationale for overhauling refugee vetting procedures and drastically slashing admission into the U.S., I spoke with David Beer, an immigration analyst at the Cato Institute in D.C. Refugees have not carried out a deadly attack in the United States in the entire history of the modern refugee program since 1980. The risk of a vetting failure since 9-11 of killing someone in the United States is just one in 328 million per year. Um, This compares to about one in 14,000 risk of dying from a regular homicide. That really shows that our vetting system is already very secure and very capable of weeding out the terrorist risk that may come through those systems. The current administration's rhetoric about vetting insecurity is entirely erroneous. What happened after 9-11 is that the U.S. government imposed a system of vetting unparalleled in world history. 
Until recently, America has sought to strengthen its international position in the world by leading humanitarian efforts. Chief among these, sharing the burden with our allies of resettling refugees fleeing global crises. Whether it's pulling out of the climate in Iran deals or militarizing the border with child detention practices, all while bromancing with dictators and starting a trade war, there is no doubt the Trump presidency has alienated the United States from our longest standing allies. I asked David Beer if he thought citizen hospitality to immigrants can help restore our reputation. He had a very interesting answer. American influence um, travels around the world through the refugee program. If you, if you heard all of the interviews that were conducted of Syrian refugees while they were arriving in the United States during this time of highly politicized rhetoric around the program, they kept saying how shocked they were that Americans who greeted them in the United States really embraced them. These people cannot help but be influenced by America in a positive direction, far more than anything we can do on a diplomatic basis or at, a, at the national level. And that's what's dwindling our influence is, is having fewer of those connections being made between people in the United States, refugees in the United States, and people around the world. Okay, so once we eliminate the fear factor and the numbers show that refugees are not in fact a dangerous population, then we're left with more mundane considerations, like how will your kids react to a house full of potentially traumatized people? Someone who knows a lot about this is Sifani Tadase, one of the first open homes hosts. She's a single mother living with her daughter in a small apartment in Oakland, California, but it wasn't space or inconvenience that were on Safani's mind when she volunteered her home to a family of five from Afghanistan. It was about 6.30, almost 7 o'clock at night, and I was contacted by Airbnb, one of the representatives with Airbnb, who said, would you be open to hosting this family? And I thought, well, you know, I'm looking at Bella. Bella's looking right in my face. She's like, what? What is it? What's going on, Mom? And I'm, I'm like, sure, absolutely. Um, when is this all supposed to be happening? And they said tonight at midnight. And I thought, oh, wow. Okay, well, um, yeah, absolutely. It, it's sort of a natural response. My mother and father came here in the early 80s very, very much in a similar form and fashion where they didn't have much, and they were escaping a civil war. And I know what that was like. I know what, what you know, kind of fear and horror they experienced in their own countries. And of course, as soon as I hang up the phone, she's like, Mommy, what did they say? What is it? What's going on? What are we doing? Mm-hmm. And and I, you know, let her know the, the situation. And so we quickly got the house in order, get the linen washed, got towels together, bought flowers and a, and a welcome card, and wanted to just create a, a an incredibly welcome peaceful and and calm environment after everything that they had just experienced. We witnessed them transition over those couple of weeks from getting off the plane and being very exhausted and and kind of bewildered to, you know, after after one week, they were smiling, the children were playing. I asked Safani how her 14-year-old daughter Bella felt about this family descending on them at midnight on a school night. She suggested I talk to Bella myself. I definitely told my friends and told them what I was doing and what my mom and I were doing. And they agreed with me. They thought that it was a very good thing to do and that I I was being a good person for that. 
This spring in Paris, a 22-year-old undocumented immigrant from Mali named Mamadou Gassama risked his life when he scaled a building to rescue a four-year-old toddler dangling from a fourth-floor balcony railing. The video went viral, and Gossima, now better known the world over as Spider-Man, was swiftly granted a meeting with French President Emmanuel Macron. Within a couple of days, President Macron made him a French citizen and gave him a job as a firefighter. Yet, while France honors the undocumented hero, its parliament pursues a bill that tightens asylum laws to the harshest in the country's modern history. Lady Liberty, a gift from France, doesn't ask you to come to America if you're a superhero. She says come if you're tired and scared and homeless. When the American government fails that charge, it's up to the American people and businesses to uphold it. The Airbnb Open Homes program will not solve the refugee crisis or fix immigration. But it will provide some hot meals, warm beds, and maybe even protect our reputation in the meantime. When all is said and done, we might find that good old-fashioned American hospitality is just as good for us as it is for our guests. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.